Welcome to episode 206. Have you ever heard of the lion diet? I personally love lions and I'd have one if it was legal, even with the potential that it would eat me. <laughs> anyway, the lion diet. So on this episode, we have a Q&A session, a follow-up conversation to a previous podcast that Marty Kendall, Karen Martell and myself did recently. That episode went so well, all of the people asked loads of questions and so we put them into a document and jumped on a Zoom call and threw them around the table. Questions like, does cholesterol affect insulin and blood glucose levels? Do I need to track my macros to succeed with data-driven fasting? How can I build a better sexual relationship with my partner? Should everyone avoid gluten? What's going on with menopause and a family history of breast cancer? Should women do ice baths and cold therapy? Is menopause the death sentence that everyone says it is? Will the vaccine affect my weight loss? <gasps> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> and is carnivore the holy grail of weight loss? There's plenty of juicy stuff in this one. So without further ado, let's get into it. Welcome to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. You've tuned in because you want to start taking your health seriously so you don't, well, get sick and die. Here we talk all things health, nutrition, and human optimization. Let's jump into it with your host and resident scientist, Maddie Lansdowne. What's up, my healthy friends? Here we are with the dream team. Before we get to uh, the episode in 2022, it's my mission to coach 300 people to get control of their emotional eating so they can lose weight and actually keep it off without counting calories or eating rabbit food. Fantastic. Welcome to this uh, Answer the Public styled follow-up Q&A episode to the original conversation, which is, for your reference, episode 198. So, these kind of, these two episodes kind of go together. So, uh, start here and then go to ep 198 or go to episode 198 and then this episode is all of the follow-up questions. So, either way, if you put these two episodes together, it'll melt your brain and you'll feel amazing. <laughs> Guaranteed. <laughs> uh, there's plenty of amazing questions in here, you're going to learn loads of stuff. We've had great feedback about it. And so, without further ado, here are the fantastic legends of friends of mine, Marty Kendall and Karen Martell. And here we go. Let's get into it. It's happening. <laughs> Let's do it. Is it recording right now? Oh, yeah. Did, you... did it not oh, come yeah. up for you? Okay. <laughs> No, it did not. <laughs> hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. We're already having a really good time for part two roundtable. Mainly picking on Maddie. With these two donkeys, Maddie and Marty. Maddie and <laughs> My Marty. My two Australians. <laughs> oh, so if you haven't Please go back and listen to part one of our roundtable, which was so great. It was actually an hour and a half, so it was a longer podcast, but it is so full of incredible information all about dieting and all the new diet trends out there. And We pick them apart and share with you our top advice when it comes to losing weight and keeping it off. So you can check that out. I'm going to link to it in the show notes so you can go back and listen to that first. So today's agenda is we are going to be doing a Q&A. We had a ton of you write in questions for all three of us. And there are questions that I think everybody is going to want to hear the answers for, or at least most of them. So be sure to stay tuned for till the, up until the end because there's a ton of great questions here. All right. So let's get started. Welcome back. First of all, gentlemen, hey. great to be back. Say hello. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Thanks for having hello. us back. 
<laughs> in spite of the last episode. In spite of the last episode, I'm still having you back. <laughs> no, I was thinking actually today, guys, I was like, I'm going to have to think up another topic that we could do yet another roundtable down the road on because I don't want this to end. I, I like having you guys on my podcast and doing this little roundtable discussion. It's great. Yeah, starting the day like this is great. I'd like to do it every day. (laughs) Yeah, me, I'm ending the day. So there we go. (laughs) All right. So our first question goes out to Marty. Does cholesterol levels correlate with insulin and blood glucose levels? If yes, why? What What is the physiological explanation? If not, again, why, says Yuri. Yeah, I'm massive deep dive to start the show. Um, <laughs> actually, had a bit of a chat with Sean Baker about this the other day, and oh, which, which was interesting. But I just said, "Hey, I'm just a dumb engineer. I don't understand all the latest controversy between Peter Atia and Dave Feldman about the minutiae of cholesterol. It can get really murky really quickly." But as a dumb engineer, I understand that you know too much fat and carbs at the same time without enough protein in the diet leads to overeating. So tick one, most people accept that. And a similar sort of thing we see in the body, that if you've got a ton of glucose in your blood and fat in your blood and not enough protein in your body, i.e. muscle, it leads to metabolic dysregulation and excess energy, which leads to excess insulin really just to hold all that energy stored in the body from flowing out into your bloodstream so insulin rises as a response to the amount of energy you've got in your body stored as fat predominantly but also elevated glucose so really where we get into trouble is you know when we've got excess glucose and excess cholesterol excess lds ldl cholesterol which becomes oxidized and that seems to be the symptom of um you know bad cholesterol and and poor metabolic health. So really cholesterol is not to be feared from healthy foods that contain it. Um, Body makes most of the cholesterol. But if you've got a high level of both glucose and fat in your body and in your blood, you're going to have elevated insulin trying to hold that back. So that's how I see it all working together. So I suppose the solution to that is to prioritize protein and nutrients, which leads to, you know, reduced appetite and reduced overall body fat levels. I I had a lady today and I was trying to explain, is this interesting that this would come up is what I see. I do a lot of lab reports, right? So I, I go through people's labs with them all day long. And I've definitely seen a bit of a trend, which is, of course, when there's high blood glucose or high insulin, that they will have high cholesterol a lot Mm. of the time as well. Mm. Um, Another thing could go with that is high liver enzymes. And then you're looking at this, you know, from a metabolic standpoint going, yeah, you've got some metabolic issues here. And these things definitely go seem to go together a lot of the time. But when I see that it's not from like if the blood glucose is fine, the hemoglobin A1C is fine, the insulin is fine, but cholesterol is high, LDL is high, then I'll start to look at hormones from there. Like I'll look to see what their thyroid is doing, how much estrogen do they have, because that can raise cholesterol. 
in a negative mm. way, which I think is interesting. Have low glucose, but more elevated blood fats, cholesterol, which often isn't something to be too concerned about if you've also got low glucose at the same time. But I don't think you should compete for the highest cholesterol score on the planet. I don't think that's the best thing to do either. So, you know, but more elevated fat in your blood if you're mainly fueling off fat rather than glucose isn't necessarily a bad thing. And I suppose all the blood tests to identify what is normal are based on people who are eating a higher carb diet. So that's where a lot of people on a low carb diet get get wound around the axle over cholesterol and really confused and it's really controversial. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was going to say as well, I think we it's really easy in the nutrition world and, well, the entire medical world to really um, pigeonhole a particular topic. And so people that um, sort of don't look at the body holistically would think cholesterol has only got to do with dietary intake. Mm. Um, and right. the other thing is that your average Australian, American, Western diet eater is generally heading in a direction of atherosclerosis or diabetes or something Mm. like that and so cholesterol is often i often describe cholesterol as like the firefighters at the fight you don't blame them for causing the fire so cholesterol levels um that are like marty said often dictated by the liver predominantly Mm. are usually there to help manage inflammation and damage and if you're slowly heading towards you know, damaging your arteries, having a heart attack later in life, which most people on a, you know, the standard diet are, um, you're going to have high cholesterol because there's a lot of arterial damage that needs constant repair. So mm. you can do whatever you like with your diet. Your liver's going to keep pumping it out until you start feeding your body a, a diet that actually lowers the inflammation and starts healing mm. the, like the calcification in your arteries, for instance. Yeah, good point. Question from Angie, which is one of my friends. She said, I'm surgically menopausal, which is not me, that's Angie. Why can't I have any good carbs? I can only lose weight or fat eating a lion diet, which is a um, uh, carnivore-type diet. Yeah, I mean, lions just eat meat, so I would say that's just a carnivore (laughs) diet. (laughs) Angie. As you age and you go into menopause, because you lose your hormones, specifically estrogen and progesterone, you become more insulin resistant. Estrogen really heavily influences our glucose regulation. So if you're not replacing your hormones in menopause, then yes, you are going to be extremely sensitive to carbohydrates because you're going to be packing it on. You're going to be more also more hungry. Estrogen affects the hunger centers of the brain. So you can become leptin resistant and insulin resistant in menopause because of the loss of estrogen, which then makes you eat more and also makes you store more as fat. So unfortunately for a lot of women, they they do develop metabolic disease. All menopausal women will have some glucose dysregulation when they go into menopause, even if they do replace their hormones. But replacing the hormones is the best thing that you can do. And then you know, we're going to sound like a broken record here, but prioritizing protein as you age is going to be so important. Um, you should still be able to eat some carbohydrates and not have to be carnivore. Uh, I see a, a lot of women that can maintain their weight. You know, maybe they've put on a few pounds of, as they've aged, but as long as they're still eating well, they're still eating that low inflammatory diet, whether it be paleo, keto, 
um, carnivore with some fruit or something like that, that can usually be tolerated and they won't continue to gain weight. Some do. And in that case, then you have to look outside the box and start looking for either HRT or yeah, a really strict yeah, diet. I suppose the, the problem with swinging to a zero carb diet is that that can end up with excess fat intake because you end up eating the, the yummier, tastier cuts of protein, which may not give you the uh, enough protein without the energy. So, yeah, just it's not necessarily, in my view, the avoiding all carbs. It's you know, getting enough protein, and it, it's really hard to overeat the protein without getting excess energy. Every time you see it, it's it's like, oh, I can't. How do I get that much protein while dialing back my energy at the same time? And that's the challenge for all of us because we want to get the, the yummy everything and, and when we look at protein sources we want the yummy versions and it's not the the dry protein powder or the dry tilapia or the you know egg whites and chicken breast we, we just don't default to that but we don't have to go to the that extreme but moving in that direction will help with satiety and, and losing body fat yeah and lifting weights it's the number one thing a menopausal woman can do to help with that insulin resistance and being able to tolerate more carbohydrates is making sure that you're lifting mm. heavy at least three to five times a week so you've got more muscle to store that. Yeah, it's, it's a known fact place. that more muscle you have, more insulin sensitive you're going to be. So, And then your metabolism is going to go up. It's also going to shape your body and make you feel better. So it works on so many different levels, helps with the osteoporosis and all of those things. So it is one of the number one things that every menopausal woman, has, I think, has to mm -hmm. do is lift weights. Which is, you don't see granny in the gym. I did see a powerlifting event recently. I walked in the door to my son's powerlifting event. There's a 65-year-old lady trying to deadlift, and she like sort of got dizzy and passed out and fell on a bum. But five minutes later, she got up again and lifted that, and it was amazing. I talked to her later. She said, I, I work in a aged care, and I see these people aging really quickly. I was just say you need to get up off the chair and do something, and it's so important. You know, it's not a characteristic. You think it's the young bros that are lifting the heavy weights, but it's more important for older people. Well, and as, speaking of, about like lifting heavy, I think as well there's um, what I've observed over being around gyms and you know working with um, or living with. Um, elite athletes before is that there's potentially a culture for women that um, you sort of go to the gym and you get on the cross trainer and you just do a heap of cardio and you catch up with your friend. But if you don't actually put your bones and muscles under significant stress when you're moving that weight, then you're not increasing the metabolic demand on those organisms at all, um, and which is why lifting heavy to the point that you actually struggle to move it. Obviously, you don't want to injure yourself, but you know you've got to, there's got to be some strenuous activities so that you actually increase the requirement in those muscles for protein and for glucose, um, and the same for your bones. Like with women, as we age, as we age, I'm not a woman, but you know, as women age, um, like osteoporosis in the Western world is huge, um, and that all comes down to the amount of weight. That you put on those bones because it means the demand for calcium is in the bones and not in the blood. So, like, there's so many reasons to lift heavy. Yeah. And a lot of women are very intimidated by it. And if that's you, 
you got to then look, you know, look for a personal trainer, you know, pay out of pocket to have somebody that's going to teach you how to properly lift so that you're yeah. comfortable going and do it. I'll tell women, I'll tell my, my clients, like go and join a, a group then like, so that it, you're following somebody you're in a group. There's lots of weightlifting group classes. Now it's not just fitness and aerobics. So go in mm-hmm. even at the YMCA. You guys maybe don't have YMCA. Do you yeah. have YMCA in Australia? Oh, okay, yeah. great. Yeah. So the YMCA <laughs> has like weightlifting group classes. So if that's, you know, that's a great place to start that's affordable and everybody can do it. And there's always a wide range of people at the YMCA. So yeah. I, I think that that's great. Okay, so I have a question for any one of us, really, because it's really, oh, so maybe, okay, Maddie, you tell me what you think first. How to help the rise in the morning blood glucose from a cortisol release, which I don't know if Jennifer really knows if it's because of cortisol, but that whole morning phenomenon. The dawn it's, phenomenon. It's the, ta- it's, it's the dawn phenomenon. Yeah. Let's talk about that. What do you think that is? Well, that helps us get out of bed. If we don't have the dawn phenomenon at mm-hmm. all, you'll never wake up. Um, well, you might wake up, but you'll just lay there and think, <laughs> you'll fall on what's the, floor the, what's the point of up. life? <laughs> yeah, you'll just flop out of bed and you won't have much to do. So it's like that conversation about hormetic, hormetic stress, right? Is that a little bit like cortisol has a function and it's kind of like the, the low carb or no carb world has vilified insulin, right? Like insulin's terrible, keep it as low as possible. It's a hormone that's been Mm. in the body since the dawn of time and we need it and it's useful. And it's the same with our stress hormones. It's the same with adrenaline. It's the same with cortisol. And without those hormones, we would quite literally be dead because when the lion came to eat us, we'd be like, go for it, bro. Like, I'm done. I'm out. <laughs> You'd be the um, lion diet. The lion diet. Yeah, you would be. <laughs> yes, exactly. So we, we want that spike in the morning because, like, you know, we, we need energy to physically get out of bed to start the day, you know, and to, to start, you know, the brain functioning ticking over. Um, so it's something we want to happen. And that spike in the morning is definitely of utility to, to kick things off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if it's cortisol being the cause of it, once again, that's a good thing. We want cortisol to go up in the morning. That should be when it's highest. And when cortisol goes up, blood glucose goes up. Yeah. If it is over, which happens to a lot of people where their morning blood glucose shows that they are type 2 diabetic or insulin resistant, then is that a problem, Marty? Uh, it's just a symptom of being insulin resistant or having metabolic syndrome, which all comes back to But what if it comes down? Um, it's just normal. Um, and, and the way to manage it is A, manage stress, B, reduce how much fat you're eating late at night or move your last meal a little bit earlier because if you ate earlier, you won't have as much energy floating around your bloodstream. And often we see people who, like if you eat a lot of carbs at night, you'll get an insulin response, which will, you know, your glucose will go up and then it will come back down. But if you eat a lot of fat, basically the the glucose and energy from fat backs up in your system so you see a, a higher waking glucose. And really just it, it's, a, it's a function of insulin resistance, which is due to energy toxicity in your body. So, again, we're going to sound like a broken record, but prioritizing exercise, prioritizing protein, managing your body composition, that will bring your waking glucose down as well as your body fat comes down. In our data-driven fasting challenges, we encourage people when the glucose is high in the morning, hey, I'm hungry, but my glucose is high. You've got plenty of glucose in your bloodstream. You've got plenty of 
fat in your bloodstream as well potentially so at that point prioritize a, a higher percentage protein meal earlier in the day you'll feel satiated your blood sugar will drop and you'll be able to eat again sooner great yeah yeah I, and i think just in general it's not something to worry about if it's coming back down yeah. hey like if as long as it's returning to baseline mm-hmm. quite quickly like I'll have that sometimes happen where it goes high in the morning, but then within a few hours, it's coming yeah. right back down to normal again, back in fours. Yeah, that's right? great. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. All right. Great. So, Marty, do I have to dial in macros to have success with data-driven fasting? This one's from Teresa. Yeah. Um, no, not really. Uh, what we do in, in data-driven fasting is just teach people when to eat based on their blood sugars, but they quickly find that different foods leave their blood sugars elevated for longer. Most people worry about how much their blood sugar goes up, but in data-driven fasting, you use your glucose as a fuel gauge to guide when you're going to eat again. So you quickly learn that the the fish and chips or the pie or the cookies and, you know, those things that you you just keep on eating and don't stop um, once you start they're the ones that you a eat more of and raise your glucose and insulin for longer, so it it, it means you can't eat again as quickly. Sorry about that. Um, so people quickly learn by reflection on what they're eating to dial in their, their macros to some degree, but then it can be useful later on to track. But generally, tracking blood sugars and tracking macros at the same time is a little bit too much to start with and Maddie, you're all about habits and building things success successively on top of each other and you don't want to change too many things all at once mm, yeah absolutely do that it only lasts two weeks we rely on willpower and then week three we're just back to the cookie life yeah totally the small changes more habits <laughs> yeah i find tracking is enough for me like just to put in my food at the end of the day Mm -hmm. if I'm doing that, which I'm doing it right now because my trainer, Pam, is like, you need to start tracking again, Karen. Let's see how much protein you're eating. I'm like, God damn it. (laughs) But it's helpful. I mean, it does help me stay on because I know that she's going to look at it every day. And I'm like, okay, I got to stay on. It's really good to track. I won't. I won't put in the ice cream I just had. (laughs) It's good to track something, whether it be your weight or your macros, your blood sugar. But tracking everything all at once is just not sustainable. One thing is hard enough, but tracking everything all the time, you just just can't do it. Most people, if they do, they don't really have a life overall. So picture this, right? Unlocking your potential, conquering emotional eating, and gaining insights directly from a health and nutrition expert such as myself. That's what we do inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group, which is currently free to join. If you've ever felt trapped by food challenges, struggled with maintaining a healthy lifestyle, or yearned for a community that understands the reasons why you've yo-yo dieted for years, then there's a new chapter waiting to be written. And this is your chance to start writing it by joining us all on Facebook Lives, on engaging posts that push you out of your comfort zone and into growth, and Q&A sessions with me. All of this works as a platform to begin changing your emotional eating problems for good. Oh, and also, as a special gift, you receive my transformative How to Turn Food into Self-Confidence ebook. And that's also for free. I get it. Skepticism might linger. You might think, Maddie, I've heard these ads and I'm not sure. Well, at least a quarter of the members inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group have been paying clients of my emotional eating program at some point over the last three or four years. 
So if you're not sure, you can post in the group and ask to find out if I'm the real deal or not. It's totally up to you. To join us in the free Healthy Mums Collective and to end your emotional eating and feel good in your own skin and begin that journey, pop down to the show notes below, click the link and breeze through three simple entry questions. Join today and let's embark on a journey of growth and empowerment. The link is in the show notes below. Well, and Karen just brought up a really important thing there, even though you were joking, is the healthy user bias, is that like people are excited to put in their data and their numbers and record when they're proud of themselves uh, because they want to, like we're all, we've all got a little kid inside of us that wants approval and wants to be rewarded. Um, And when we're not so good, we don't tell the whole story all of the time, right? Because we're embarrassed, we're ashamed. Um, And so, yeah, when you've got all of these data tracking elements that you've got to report to Pam and Pam's a legend, I know. Um, But like there's, there's a part of us that's like, oh, do I really want to show that I'm a failure? Do I really want to prove to somebody else yeah. I'm letting myself down? You know, and that could be a really tricky rabbit hole to sort of that can start a bit of a spiral downwards. Yeah, in been crunching the numbers from our data-driven fasting stuff over the last couple of weeks, and people seem to lose weight during the week and then overeat on the weekend. I think then on Monday and Tuesday they look at their glucose and they look at their weight and they might be tracking their macros and. They go, oh yeah, the, the Monday looked really bad and gained weight, and you know Tuesday, I oh, know it's going to be bad, bad again, so I won't actually track, and that's sort of when they fall off. So I think just finding a consistency throughout the week where you're reasonably good, but not trying to be really, really good all the time, because then if you're really, really, really good all the time, you can't continue that, and you have to eventually let loose and people overdo it on the weekend and undo everything they've done and then they can't fess up to the the macro tracking or the weight or the blood glucose and go i don't want to see that i'm just not going to track and as soon as they do it once or twice they give up it's human nature so don't try too hard just you know manage one thing at a time that's funny because I never put myself on the weekend when I because I'm just done it for like a week. So I did every day of the weekday and then it just disappeared. Pam's like, Karen, why aren't you tracking? Let's get back on. I'm like, yeah, there's no point in tracking Pam when I just ate a bunch of ice cream on the weekend and went out for dinner. And yes, so I am bad for that. But I did tell her, I did say, I probably won't track on the weekends because <laughs> no one wants to see that. I don't tend to really stay on task on the weekends. <laughs> but the interesting thing is, that, I'm a big believer in 80 20. Well, uh, the 80 20 is totally okay. The problem is that a lot of people do the 20, and we're not like Marty said, you, you all, we all get to a point where we need to let loose, right? But it's when people go on a diet, go on a change, start a program, and they get to the end of that program or even halfway through. And they blame the tools for the lack of outcome. And it's like if we collected the 20% of data that you mm. let loose every week, we'd be able to explain the outcome and why this isn't working for you. Because mm. it's not that it doesn't work right. for you. It's that you're, you're, um, you're being biased about the way you collect your information mm. and saying, well, I was good Monday to Friday for five weeks. Um, but, you know, there's another 14 days in there in that five weeks <laughs> of data where you potentially overate more calories than you ate in the five days. Yeah. And so it's, yeah, I think yeah. a lot of people blame the tools um, when they're being ignorant of their own choices, which is, again, human nature, yeah. and it's something we've got to figure out and manage. But I think, yeah, a lot of people, diets that don't work for people, it's, well, they do work for a lot of people. We've just got to be totally honest. <laughs> mm. Yeah. 
and not again. Not I I hard. just have such a hard time with those things where they say because I get this message every time I go put in my fitness pal what I ate, and then at the end of it when I say complete diary, it pops up. If you continue on this trajectory, you will lose 10 pounds by June 30th. And I'm like, screw you. That is so not true. If it was that easy, oh my God, I'd be so happy if weight loss was that easy. But for (laughs) women, it's not. My husband, sure. My husband's like, just recently, he's like, I'm going to try and lose some weight. And by the end of the week, his pants were falling off him. I'm like, are you freaking kidding me he's like yeah look my pants i can't even i can't wear these pants anymore i've I've already got i've lost five pounds in a week I mean, from from intermittent fasting that's it that's all he does i'm like oh my gosh if only it was that easy for me so i'm not sold on the whole tracking thing yet i do think it's just a mental thing that can help you to stay healthy eating and stay on track because you're just because you're staying accountable to somebody, at least I am. Mm -hmm. And so that just helps me to eat better and be more conscious of what I am putting in my mouth. But by no means does, I don't find that it helps me to actually. And it's not really about the tracking the calories and minimizing calories because eventually you're going to find a way to eat back the calories on the weekend when Karen doesn't track. But if you can keep (laughs) focused on dialing up the protein and, and limiting the energy, just pushing that needle a little bit, consistently then you'll eat less because you're more satiated so back to karen what are the general best practices for surgical menopause hrt with a family history of breast cancer and a personal history of pcos from tracy i got no idea here (laughs) okay so tracy that's that's a whole episode in and of itself um If you have a history of breast cancer, find out if you've got the genes, like if there's the BRCA gene in your family, find out if you have it so that you know whether or not that is something you need to be concerned about. Breast cancer and HRT is a very, uh, very deep, very controversial topic because the bottom line is, Estrogen does not cause breast cancer like most people think it does. Back in the day, in the 1950s, high doses of estrogen were used to treat women with breast cancer. It was also like the number one most prescribed medication. So then we got into, okay, no, we think that breast cancer is causing it. And what it is, is estrogen is a growth hormone. It also is really good for inflammation. And so your body will send estrogen to where there is inflammation and where even if there's immune dysregulation, it's very good for the immune cells as well. So it's going there to do its job. So there's inflammation, let's say, in your breast tissue because you have breast cancer cells. That estrogen can go there thinking it's going to go do its job and tamp down the inflammation but yet it's a growth hormone. So it can make that breast cancer grow and spread. And so then you don't want to be obviously using estrogen if you have breast cancer. The research shows that women that replace their estrogen have a decreased rate of getting breast cancer. 
And we tend to see breast cancer happen mostly in menopausal women. We're not seeing women in their 20s getting breast cancer very often. It happens, but not very often. And we have stupid high amounts of estrogen when we are in our 20s. And so if if estrogen caused breast cancer, we would see it mostly in young women. But yet we're seeing it in women when they lose their estrogen. And even in the big WHI study, they had two arms of this study. One had progest one arm of the study they used progestin, and the other arm progestin and premarin. So that is the horse pregnant horses urines estrogen. Okay, so they had premarin, which is fake. Sorry, progestin, which is fake progesterone and then the horse's estrogen. The other arm of the study, they only had women on Premarin, which is the horse's estrogen, not on progestin because they had no uterus, so they didn't give them progestin. When At the end of that study, they actually stopped it early, but the arm of the study that women were using the progestin had an increased rate of breast cancer. The arm of the study that just used Premarin had a decrease by 30% in breast cancer rates. So it's the it was the progestin, the fake progesterone that increased it. And guess where progestin is primarily? Birth control pills, which are handed out like candy to every woman that wants it. Women are put on it at 13 years old and they're stayed they're told to stay on it for as long as they want. But yet you ask your doctor for estrogen replacement and, oh my gosh, it's going to cause you cancer and don't you dare use it. So there's a lot of misinformation about it. And so I always encourage women, if they have a history of breast cancer, do your research. You can look at um, Dr. Avram Blooming. He's um, an oncologist down in the United States who is treating women who have had breast cancer with estrogen replacement and has seen incredible results with it. So there's some new information coming out about it. Um, but like I said, if you've got breast cancer cells, it can make it grow. So you do have to be careful. And so it's really up to each person and you need to do your own research on it. When it comes to polycystic ovarian syndrome, that's a metabolic disease. You really have to get to the root of that. Um, HRT can help. A lot of women with PCOS will have low estrogen levels. Uh, we'll, we'll see them that they pour out a lot of testosterone and that testosterone should be converting to estrogen in the ovaries. And we'll see that they don't convert it very well because um, dip for different reasons. But so that's not, so they'll sometimes have low estrogen. Sometimes they'll have low progesterone. So if they're going into perimenopause or if you're, you know, just wanting a bit of a bandaid while you work on the root of the problem, sometimes bioidentical hormone therapy can help with, uh, getting that insulin sensitivity back while you work on your diet and, and take certain supplements to help uh, regulate your blood sugar better and lower the testosterone and the other androgens in the body. So what advice, just to follow up question, what advice would you give to your daughter about um, uh, contraception and, and, and birth control pills? If, if, like, or if you had your time over, what would you do with respect to that sort of thing? Obviously controversial, but... 
<laughs> Very controversial. And I think every woman should have the right to choose that. Um, as far as parents go and their teenage daughters, uh, do your homework. I've done several episodes on my podcast about birth control pills. Uh, we are not being told what they're doing to our body. There's new research that's showing that it shrinks uh, the, the hippocampus part of the brain. Uh, every single woman that's on birth control pill will have a leaky gut, which then will cause a whole slew of problems. Um, we know that the gut now is related to absolutely everything in the body. Um, it can increase your risk of breast cancer, heart attack, stroke, make you gain weight. Um, it changes the cortisol levels, changes your reaction to things. It changes so much and we're not being told any of it. And so to put your daughter on, on it and shut down her fertility, you, you don't, I personally don't want to do that to my daughter mm -hmm. and I will never, ever put her on it. And I will tell her never to go on it. And I had this conversation with her. I have a 15 year old daughter and her and her friend were in my car and her friend's mom died of breast cancer. And we got talking about sex for some reason and they're not sexual yet. And I just said, I had, was telling her if you ever need someone to, someone to talk to, cause she doesn't have a mom anymore. I said, come talk to me. And she said, yeah, my dad just asked me if I wanted to go on birth control. And I said, well, that's a personal choice. I said, but you need to do your homework about it. And I told her the pros and cons of it. And I said, you know, you, you obviously don't want to have a teen pregnancy. If you are sexually active, that's the, the horrible. You wouldn't want that. But I said, being on birth control makes a lot of young women think that that's a green light to just go out and have sex and not use protection. And I'm like, even if you were on birth control, you would still want to use protection. You would still want to use a condom because you don't want to get an STD. So I said, in my eyes, it should just be that there is no birth control because you are at an age where all of these hormones are changing and fluctuating. And this is a very crucial time for brain development and body development. And you're going to come in and shut that down with chemicals. They aren't hormones. Let's be clear. Birth control is not hormones. It is chemicals. So you're going to put that toxic crap in your body. That's not cool. And you know what? What's so funny is they had a birth control for men. <laughs> and the complaint was that their sex drive was low, that they were emotional, that, you know, all the symptoms that women get from birth control pill, men had. And so they said, oh, you know what? No, Aww. we're not going to put that on the women can take it for it. You sons of bitches. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, women are stronger. <laughs> <laughs> well, somebody said, like, who, what, as if we would ever trust a man when he said, it's okay, I don't need to wear a condom, I'm on the pill. We'd be like, mm, somehow I don't believe you. So, <laughs> I think uh, okay, I, so, I was going to say too, Karen, ahead, just off yeah. the back of that, like, I think that we can yeah. safely say now, and this is the phrase that I use, I've worked with enough people, conversations, read books, studies, that whenever you ingest any type of drug, you're bypassing a natural process. And that is not me saying that you shouldn't take the drug. That's just me highlighting that you should be aware that there's a cost. There's always a biological cost to shortcutting yes. the system. And in the case of the pill, which is taken daily for decades, you are shortcutting your... You're essentially stealing time from the future of your sexual freedom because eventually when you remove that to either try and have a baby or you have so many hormone, hormonal issues because you've taken it so long, you then deal with the, the maybe the same amount of time you've been taking the pill, recovering from it. So 
I think, yeah, that it's like you're literally stealing time from the future. And so, yes, and maybe the conversation is it's better that my 14-year-old daughter does not have a baby and will deal with her hormone issues when she's 45. Maybe that's maybe that's a rational trade-off. I don't know. I'm not a woman. I'm mm-hmm. not a mother. I'm mm-hmm. not a parent. But the, the important thing to note for everybody listening is that there is a trade-off. Yeah, and so many girls are being put on it for acne. And that's the sad thing. Like 13-year-olds are being put on birth control pills to stop acne. Mm-hmm. And it's like exactly what you just said. Well, what's the trade-off mm. here? You know, when you could just change their diet, give them some good supplements for the skin. You know, how, you know, there's lots you can do for ac- teenage acne without having to shut down their fertility mm. and increase their risk of heart attack and stroke and breast cancer and, and infertility because infertility is going yeah. up. And I think that's part of the reason is the overuse of birth control pills. Mm-hmm. So Totally agree. Yeah. Okay. So, Maddie, should everyone avoid gluten? <laughs> <laughs> I'm interested to hear what you say about that. Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. So, um, should everyone avoid gluten? So, I, I guess whenever anyone asks me about that, I default to a study that I read a few years ago, which had... 8,000 people in it and it was done in England um, and they they found that 96% of people had an immune response to the gluten molecule or the gliadin um, protein. However, only 8% of the group had a detectable symptom that they themselves were able to report. So, um, for me, based on that, I mean, gluten's down the list of foods that you should probably remove. It's like get rid of the chocolate, get rid of the, you know, like all the different things above that, the pizza, the alcohol, before we get to, you know, is my rye bread, you know, the worst thing in the world? It's probably not. But um, yeah, based on what I've looked at and studied, it leads to leaky, gluten leads to leaky gut in many people, whether they have a detectable symptom or not. Um, And it does trigger the immune system in most people, some type of immune response, whether you know it's happening or not. And I, when I talk about that, I usually say to people, your immune system's working all day defending itself mm. from things. And if you knew, then you would base, we'd all be just lying on the couch all day because our immune system would be having symptoms that we're aware of, fighting off everything that's in the air and everything that's in the food. And so it's normal that you shouldn't really know that your immune system is working. But obviously, that, that 8% of people do and people with celiac disease know that that's happening and, and people with sensitivity. Uh, sensitivities. So, a general broad answer would be, I think it would be beneficial to most people. And that also comes um, off the back of the fact that we, yeah, most white bread in the supermarket, it's like, it's so incredibly refined that that white powder is essentially in drug form. Um, you know, it's it's so rapidly absorbed into the, the bloodstream that you're not eating the whole plant. Yeah. And, you know, any, any podcast I'm ever on, people know that I'm whole real food, just eat real food, you know, and that is not the whole real food. Yeah. It's a bit like it went through a manufacturing process which extracted it from most of the part of that, the wheat molecules that are actually full of nutrition. Yeah, um, take so, out the wheat know, if we come and that give angle. it to the cows and feed the cows yeah. and we just eat the nutrient-poor refined energy. And if you're going to look at it from a nutrient density perspective, you'd be pulling out the grain, the refined grains completely anyway. But, um, you know, yeah. if you want to have a little bit of bread and it doesn't, if you tolerate it, yeah. okay, then go for it. But if you're trying to do it on your nutrient density and prioritizing protein, you're probably going to be limiting um, gluten-containing yeah. foods anyway. Yeah, I agree. It should be a sometimes mm-hmm. food. Um, and and if, you can, if you're totally okay without it, 
probably better off. Mm. Um, but obviously, that's a general. Um, what do you both think? Oh. I think just by clinical experience, majority of people feel better without mm. gluten in their yeah. diet, and that's and and when it comes to weight loss, it can sometimes be life-changing like people that can't lose weight or they're always bloated and they go on all these you know try all these different diets and calorie counting and then they just cut gluten out and it's like they lose 10 pounds in a month so i I do see it being extremely powerful and i don't think very many of us can get away with eating it if you believe you're gluten intolerant you'll probably be better off because you'll eliminate a lot of the crappiest foods in the supermarket. So if you want to believe you're gluten intolerant, that's great. But like Maddie said, only a small fraction of people are actually symptomatically gluten intolerant, including most the other of thing I tack on to the end of this conversation is for people not to fall to the illusion that things labelled gluten free are healthy. Um, just in the same way, if something's yeah. you know advertising and marketing is designed to sell you, not to create health. Um, it's the same with plant based marketing, vegan marketing, Fat-free, and the same with gluten free. Yeah, like, and so many people that, you know, like it's kind of like a fashion statement, like, oh, I'm gluten free. And you ask them why, and they don't know because <laughs> it's, cause yeah. it's what, what all my friends at brunch are doing. Um, so, you know, like, and they'll be like, I'll have that gluten free cake and the gluten free yeah. cookies and my gluten free bread. It's like, mm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. so, yeah, just, no, not as good. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, all right, Karen. Back to a hormone question from Kathy. So, in reference to changing hormones for women, to match your other half, and I'm presuming her other half is a male partner, um, to build a better relationship sexually, is there a negative result of tweaking hormones or doing any of these adjust- adjustments versing, versus letting the body's hormones adjust naturally on their own? Uh, okay. So, I think she, I think she's asking like, can we tweak the, should we tweak them to match our partner or not? Mm-hmm. Cause that's kind I, of, I think when, when I interviewed you, Karen, you were talking about um, men can take testosterone supplementation potentially in the first half of the cycle when the women is more um, frisky potentially. And, and, and it, no, just, you take some less days than you take it every day, but you, you yeah. cycle it. Up and so down. men cycle with the female partner, which sounds like a pretty fun thing to do. Yeah, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, because our hormones naturally fluctuate up and down throughout the month. Men, not as much, but you do have a little fluctuation, especially daily, seasonally. You guys have some. So if you've lost your testosterone, and this can go for if you've got, if you know, if it's a gay couple as well, like female with female, male with male, you could still, if you guys are losing your hormones and you're going on hormone replacement, 100% do it together in a way that matches each other so that if you are going up and down, this is more with like rhythmic dosing of hormones. So a lot of people will just do static hormone dosing when they get into menopause, which means the same dose every day. And same with when men are put on testosterone, they'll be given the same dose every day. And it sh- a lot of the, the clinical experience shows that 
men do better with testosterone when it is cycled up and down because they tend to get receptor fatigue, which means that they don't get the benefits from that testosterone replacement like they used to get. So men will feel really good when they first started. They'll feel on top of the world for like one to three months. And then they go back to their doctor and say, I don't feel so good anymore. Now my libido's back down. I'm not getting a heart on anymore. I don't feel so good. So if you cycle it, and so there'd be days or weeks where it's lower and then times when it's higher. And you can do this to coincide with your partner if she's also on a rhythmic dose and she's changing her dosage. You could do it in a way where you're both having a peak of testosterone and for women, estrogen, which would make you want to have more sex during that time. So you could do a week of increasing the estrogen and testosterone for women and increasing testosterone for women. For men. The, the center of the cycle, and day 14, where they ovulate. The center of the cycle. Yes. Day 12 is when we have an estrogen and testosterone peak because that makes us go out and want to have sex right before we ovulate. And so you can mimic that, but you have to find a practitioner that's open to that. There are this, I mean, I got this information from hormone doctors who are treating people this way. And so absolutely you can, which makes it a lot more fun. Like my husband and I have talked about it and I said, when you, when it comes time for you to get on testosterone, we're going to do this. Like we're going to have to plan for the, us to have this peak, you know, just a week of good times and then we can settle back down again, just like we used, you know, just like how we are when we're cyclical. So yeah, I think yeah, it's great to great. do. Um, there's a, there's a book recommendation that comes to mind just on the back of that is that there's like there's a there's a few there's a few couples in the world and they're not common but that just have an amazing sex life forever just because of whatever reason but there's a lot of psychology that comes into the sex when especially in long-term relationships and there's a phenomenal book i want to re- recommend that all men and all women should read it's mainly geared to women but the reason men should uh, read it is because if they understand their female partners everybody's life will be better um and it's called come as you are and it's by sex researcher emily nagoski highly recommend i've read it a couple of times it's um it's phenomenal cool great and is come spelled (laughs) c-u-m i'm guessing is it karen come on (laughs) well oh i would think it would be no this is scientific (laughs) sexual research oh Okay, your mind sorry, out of the sorry. It should. They should have. They would have sold more coffee. Karen's obviously <laughs> cycling her testosterone this week. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Um, oh, you swear so Another question now. for Karen. Um, <laughs> is menopause really going to be the death sentence that everyone makes it out to be? What are the positives of menopause that we can celebrate there are a few related questions nobody really wants to take the nose dive into mm-hmm. menopause yeah yeah it's funny because i had this conversation with my sister who's just hitting perimenopause right now and she said why aren't any why don't we know about this and she said i just went and asked my friend i said are you have you been through menopause and she said oh yeah don't even get me started and And my sister was like, it's such a horrible thing, it seems like, and nobody's talking about it. We're not given this information. And I'm like, no, we're not. 
We get a little bit of sex ed when we're teenagers and then that's it. And nobody's talking to us about menopause. No w- women aren't talking about it enough. I think it's, it, there is a movement happening thanks to me, but, <laughs> but <laughs> yes, it, it can be, it can be that awful. And, and I think that that needs to be recognized. And I, I don't want to say it to be the Debbie Downer and to be like, oh, you're so negative, Karen. That's not why I say it. I say it so that you can prepare yourself for it. Because I think one of the questions too is like, if you're really healthy and you eat well and you exercise and you have a good positive mindset going into menopause, is that enough? And it's not for a lot of women. And we all need to hear that. We need to know that you could be the healthiest person in the world and still suffer immensely through menopause. And so you need to educate yourself on it. You need to prepare that it might not be fun. And that's okay to prepare yourself for that and to be knowledgeable about it because then you're going to be armed with the tools to make sure that you don't have those symptoms because there's something that can be done. And that's the positive part. Women don't have to suffer through this time. There is an answer to all of those horrible symptoms that women can experience. And there's a very long list, but there is an answer to that. And so don't settle for feeling subpar. I, I talked to a woman yesterday and she was like, oh, I used to have this great sex life and I was going to be a sex coach. And she said, but you know what? I've really lost my drive and you know, my husband's older, so he's he doesn't really care too much. So I think I'm just going to let it go. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. No. One, sex can make you feel vital, like full of vitality and helps you connect with your partner and young and fun. And it does so many amazing things for oxytocin in our brain and our body. And it should still be a part of your life if you so choose it to be. And because you've gone into menopause, shouldn't mean that your libido has to go. Uh, I talked to another woman today who said, I haven't had sex with my partner in two years because it hurts so badly. And I was like, no, you don't have to put up with that. There is a solution. You just have to find it. And I, you know, I, that's what I, that's what I coach women on is like, okay, here's what you can do. And so it's a lot of trial and error, but there is a solution for each of us. And when you get that, that solution and you can feel good and feel vital and you feel youthful, then this time of your life can be the best time of your life. It is when you really come into your own, when you are no longer taking care of little children. Typically, I know there's still some women that do, but typically you don't have little kids. You know, you're just about you for the first time in your life and what you want. And we get, there's a reason why they call us wise women when we're in menopause, because you do, you can become a lot more wise and just rooted and know what you want, what you don't want. And it can just be honestly the best time. I, I've never been happier as I am right now with my life. So um, it can be amazing. That, I suppose mm-hmm. to prepare for menopause though, having good body composition, having a diet dialed in, and as we say, you know, lifting weights, eating protein, etc. that will 
you a better chance yep. to set you up for less complications because once you get into menopause and go, oh, shit, my life is falling apart and I'm diabetic and my hormones are screwed and, you know, I, there's so many things you need to do to remedy it. And it's really hard to gain muscle and, and start lifting and dialing your diet and everything all at once really quickly once you feel really poorly. So if you can preemptively yes. do it in the 10 years or 20 or 30 or 40 years leading up to that, you're going to be in a much yes. better place, correct? And stress reduction, like that's one of the best things that you can do to get through mm. menopause a lot easier is making sure that you're taking care of your stress mm. levels and that you have all those foundational pieces. They, of course, they, they, that's what they are. They're, they're foundation. And you can't just go from being super unhealthy and not taking care of yourself and not eating well and not exercising to let's just slap on some hormones and everything's going to be okay in this menopause stage doesn't work that easily. You have to have you have to have those pieces first, then you build on top of that. I did a um a practitioner's education thing that was run by a naturopath that had a PhD a few years ago. Um, and she um, said that in the past, like pre two thousands, that it used to be there was about a third of women that breezed through menopause, a third that had a you know was uncomfortable, and a third that had a horrific time. But she said, um, and kind of touching on what Marty was uh, suggesting, is that as in the last twenty years or so, we're noticing that that group of people having a horrific experience is getting worse and worse and worse. And I think, yeah, it comes back to the fact that the Western diet, the Western stressful lifestyle, you know, and just the the toxicity, yeah, all all the types Mm -hmm. of things are just getting more and more and more. So the numbers are moving into that space because people are not 10, 20, 30, 40 years before menopause doing anything. And then they get into the, they jump into the roller coaster that is menopause and think, now's the time to change my entire life. <laughs> my, I'm going to start working out. I'm going to do all of the things. And it's like, why isn't it working? Like, um, and, and she, interestingly that you say wise women, because she said having a positive mindset about it too, is that we transition to the wisdom years. And I really like that idea too. Mm-hmm. I do too. Yeah. I think that's great. And yeah, we are seen and we have to we have to face that. We have to face the fact that women are going into menopause earlier and earlier. Mm. We're seeing perimenopause starting at like 35. Yeah. And this is, there's so many reasons for it. And it's, you know, everybody can go listen to my podcast to find out all those reasons. <laughs> but but safe to say it can you have to take care of yourself more than ever at this time because you're going to be a lot more sensitive to stuff now yeah. than you ever were. Yeah. Let's see if we can get uh, your podcast cancelled by the next question, Karen. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm asking Maddie that question, you That's mean? That's segue. Maddie, will the vaccine affect my weight loss? <laughs> so I'm asking you that since you're already cancelled. As a, a deplatformed <laughs> <No>, Instagram. Instagrammer, <laughs> no, I will answer this very safely. Um, I think that's a good question and I would refer to the answer that I um, said before about the pill which is that every time we try and cheat nature we we pay a biological cost it doesn't matter what kind of drug it is you know ibuprofen the pill vaccines whatever it is we're introducing something into the system which was not naturally there and so for that there's a cost usually right there's a biological cost and so all I would say is that if we're increasing the inflammation of the system, um, one of the barriers to losing weight for many people is 
low-grade acute long-term inflammation. And so if we're continuing to inflame the body, it's definitely possible that we are slowing down, interrupting or affecting a weight loss um, plan, strategy, eating you know, meal plan, whatever it might be. So, And the other thing to mention is that we need to be aware too which you know is potentially up for debate, but there's very limited data, um, and I, I'm yet to ever see a, a research study that connects weight loss diets and vaccines. Um, so you know we can presume that adding this into the system is increasing inflammation, and again it comes back to that: is this a good trade-off? It's like is having a vaccine and protecting myself from whatever it's protecting me from versus going on my weight loss diet. Is that a good trade-off that I would prefer not to die tomorrow and I'd rather have challenges with my weight loss journey for the next 25 years? Maybe that's, a, that, that's an okay you know, trade-off. Um, so I think limited research, but we can safely assume that something may be happening, but we don't know. There's just not enough information. Yeah, we, we know 150% that there is some effect from the vaccine mm-hmm. on the ovaries. They've actually given John Hopkins Medical Center a million dollars to research this. So this is, you can look this up. It's not conspiracy. (laughs) Women's periods have stopped or they have gotten their periods back if they're in menopause. We know that the spike protein will settle in the ovaries. So it can cause hormone issues. To what extent, we don't know yet. I don't know if we'll ever know. So for some people, because of that, in a roundabout way, could hamper your ability to lose weight or could make you gain weight because it could be affecting Mm. the hormonal system. But I have no proof of that. Yeah. And we probably never will because as if, you know, they will release that kind of information that, you know, it's not being helpful in some kind of way. Um, So, yeah. Can't comment because don't know and not going to share my theories. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because I like Karen's podcast and I want it to stay. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Maddie. (laughs) All right. I've got a question for Marty. Marty, is the carnivore the holy grail of weight loss? So picture this, right? Unlocking your potential, conquering emotional eating, and gaining insights directly from a health and nutrition expert such as myself. That's what we do inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group, which is currently free to join. If you've ever felt trapped by food challenges, struggled with maintaining a healthy lifestyle, or yearned for a community that understands the reasons why you've yo-yo dieted for years, then there's a new chapter waiting to be written. And this is your chance to start writing it by joining us all on Facebook Lives, on engaging posts that push you out of your comfort zone and into growth, and Q&A sessions with me. All of this works as a platform to begin changing your emotional eating problems for good. Oh, and also, as a special gift, you receive my transformative How to Turn Food into Self-Confidence ebook. And that's also for free. I get it. Skepticism might linger. You might think, Maddie, I've heard these ads and I'm not sure. Well, at least a quarter of the members inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group have been paying clients of my emotional eating program at some point over the last three or four years. So if you're not sure, you can post in the group and ask to find out if I'm the real deal or not. It's totally up to you. To join us in the free Healthy Mums Collective and to end your emotional eating and feel good in your own skin and begin that journey, pop down to the show notes below, click the link and breeze through three simple entry questions. Join today and let's embark on a journey of growth and empowerment. The link is in the show notes below. 
yes and no. Um, I had a chat, as I said, I had a chat with Sean the other day, and it was great. I had a whole lot of fun. I think he, he even I saw him talking about you know people extrapolate carnivore and people think that he's advocating that no one should ever eat vegetables and he's saying that's not what I'm trying to say. Um, but I think what the carnivore diet does really well is it ensures people get bioavailable protein, which is number one in our analysis of satiety and what increases you know, how full we feel after eating and how little we end up eating. And, you know, it takes away that I'm just going to keep on eating anything and everything and I suppose from a sensory specific satiety perspective if you've got a buffet you just want to try a little bit of that a little bit of that but if you simplify it to meat only and it's got plenty of protein which has got a, a ton of a ton of nutrients but not all the nutrients in massive quantities you're going to be more satiated and it also removes a lot of the inflammatory foods the the grains the eggs the the oils, which is really beneficial. But is it optimal for everybody forever? Um, you know, not necessarily because you can say, yeah, most of the nutrients in the carnivore diet, meat only, are 100% bioavailable. But if you're only getting a minuscule amount of that, it doesn't matter if it's 100% bioavailable. If you're only getting a tiny amount, then you're actually not going to get a lot of that nutrient so, you know, at that point, once you've got to the point of, you know, I've eliminated my inflammatory issues and my gut issues and I've taken out gluten, I've taken out high oxalate things that I'm worried about, you've got a baseline and then you can start adding foods that actually provide those nutrients you're missing out on. So most people don't stick to it forever. When you get to the point where you get off, I found my groove here, I'm going to add some foods that contain the nutrients that I might be missing on a carnivore diet. Yes, I don't think it's the holy grail, though, because let me tell you, think about it before like the 1970s, there was no obesity rates in North America. It was so low, they didn't track it. It was less than 4%. Nobody was eating a carnivore diet. That was not, it was unheard of. Nobody was eating a ketogenic diet. It was real. But they were in maintenance. Food. Those people didn't. Like that's the difference there, right? Is that the people that were not eating carnivore, we, we're using carnivore and keto as tools to get from problem to solution. Those people were already in the solution. So they didn't need to be carnivore. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. I get that. <laughs> yeah. I think it can be used as a just that though, like as a reset. Some people need to stay on it long term because they have maybe autoimmune conditions, inflammatory issues, and it can be amazing. It can be amazing for correcting insulin resistance faster than anything I've seen before um, compared to keto and all that. Mm -hmm. It's definitely top on the list for insulin resistance. I just think that in general, you don't, most people don't have to stick with it long term. Yeah. And most people aren't doing it right. They're they're living on hamburger patties and yeah. cheese and cre heavy cream, and they're not eating the organ meats. Or they're I had one lady; she was drinking a cup of honey every day because Paul yeah. Saladino told her that that was good. And it was like, okay, but how is this, you know, natural to our bodies? And if you're sitting not, on the couch, you, you don't know, need we would that have much been carnivore for all certain night, but, times. You know, most people are just lying around and yeah. surfing all day like Paul's pictures. Yes, um, but. My, my, my yeah. type one 
wife and son, you know, enjoy a good chunky steak for lunch and that's a lot of my wife's daily diet yeah, and it works really, good. really well in terms of insulin sensitivity and blood sugar management and satiety. Yeah. It's great, but it doesn't need to be yeah. that exclusive and, and other foods will provide some of those harder-to-find nutrients like potassium, magnesium and vitamin C that are harder to get on a, a meat-only diet. Yeah, and then we, you'll start running into problems for, for with women where if it, you're just eating meat, you're telling the body that it's probably winter time, not the best time mm. to be fertile. If you've got adrenal issues and thyroid issues, which most women have, that starts to become a problem with no carbohydrates mm. on the diet. And I see this over yeah. and over and over again. So I think you, we do have to be careful and not think that it's the holy grail of weight loss because for some yeah. people it's not. If your blood sugars are elevated, then it's good to dial back your dietary carbohydrates but a lot of people i see from a low carb keto background actually find they can tolerate carbohydrates really well and it's the fat they need to dial back and in the carnival community there's debates between the high protein and everybody's like anti-ted neiman and they're all swinging you know we need, need ketones and we need lots of fat and fat is magic and fat can do no wrong and there's fat so many nutrients in fat and you know it's the same sort of hyper palatable dopamine producing foods that we love to eat more of and if we just eat the you know you can't get all the protein you need from butter and mct oil because it's just not there you have to eat so many calories to get that protein so again it's the dialing your energy to versus your nutrients and protein yeah and for millions of years we weren't eating fat think of the the animals think when we were carnivores as hunter gatherers the animals you were catching were, were extremely lean. You weren't drowning everything in butter and chugging back MCT oil. You know, yeah. it's just so high fat, super high fat. It was it was it has never been. Mm. It's never it, when you look through history. It just it wasn't. Yeah. So I just don't think that naturally we should be doing super high mm. fat. Yeah. Well, and they and they're eating that's seasonally, my, that's right? Just my like they, you know, they yeah. would hunt something, or you know, be a particular type of year, and something would be more available than something else, and so we'd, they'd sort of naturally be doing that cyclical dieting of, oh, well, we've caught we've caught a buffalo, so we'll eat we'll eat that and binge on that for a week, and we'll be carnivore for a week or two, exactly, and then after that. And then we'll be vegan. Yeah, then we'll be vegan for a week because there's some stuff that's available. There's no yeah. animals. And we're going to go get tubers and greens and that's what we're going to eat for totally. a week. You know, it's like it would have, we would have come times of carnivore, times of vegan. And that's, and I think that that's an important piece is if you are healthy enough, you can cycle these mm -hmm. things, right? Have times where you're low meat, have times higher meat, obviously more times than mm -hmm. not, but yeah, I think that that's okay to do and have fruit sometimes yeah. when it's in season. Yeah. I think that that's all from really a seasonal good for perspective. Us. You can see like spring mm -hmm. is the protein spring modified fast. We've got lean protein and lots of fiber. Summer is the you know lots of high carbohydrate. Autumn is the fat and carbs with minimal protein, where it fattens you up to go into winter, where you've got protein and a lot of fat because the animals were fatty from autumn and you know we just get stuck in that that autumn all the time and we're eating this fat <laughs> carb combo that's 
refined sugar, refined grains and, and seed oils, industrial seed oils. The amount of fat in our diet over the last 100 years has risen by six, 700 calories per person per day, which is absurd just from wow. industrial monocrop agriculture from fossil fuel fertilizers, which come from you know gas, which is rapidly becoming harder to get right now. So the future of our food system that's so dependent and so fine-tuned We've doubled our population because we've mined non-renewable gas. Um, half the population wouldn't be here if it wasn't for fossil fuel-based fertilisers. And um, we're they really they've doubled in price over the last 12 months. So it's going to be interesting times to see how that affects how we eat and how we grow food over the next couple wow, of years. Wow, yeah. Watch this space. Yeah, no kidding. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, here in Melbourne at least, uh, $16 for a lettuce. It's absurd. Mm. Oh, what? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. It's pretty crazy at the Holy. moment. Holy. People are walking around coals with oh, okay, lettuce so- baton written on their little <laughs> grocery bags <laughs> with a lettuce in it because it's so damn expensive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think we've got the next, next question. Um, so, Maddie, cold immersion for women, pros or cons? Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I mean, it's a really good dopamine swap out, um, which, like, we're all dopamine addicted to all sorts of different things. And, and you know, we've talked about that before, probably on both of your podcasts. But um, it's a really good supplement for, like, a healthy, natural way to get a huge dopamine hit, uh, which is really useful, which can buy you time for productivity or focus or, uh, you know, anything like that in the hours after you do some cold therapy, um, which is really useful from a psychology perspective. But, I mean, if we're talking about women specifically, I mean, it's, it's similar to men in the sense that helps you um, upregulate that brown fat um, caloric expenditure so you can burn a little bit more fat, um, helps with blood sugar rec- regulation, ad- adenopectin um, goes up, uh, so um, which helps with that glucose uh, regulation as well, it can reduce inflammation, post-recovery workouts are usually easier, which is why we see athletes jump into ice baths after they play or perform. Um, lymphatic circulation improves. But I think if we're talking women specifically, it's important to uh, make sure that you pick the times of your cycle if you're a menstruating woman, that you put your body under pressure, under that hormetic stress um, because the world already has enough stress for you. If we were living in nature, I'd say, you know, do your cold dip every day, but we're not. Um, And we've got all sorts of different things going on. So I would probably lean towards like weeks one and three are probably the weeks that you would be more likely to do those, you know, more stressful things. And and it is a a hormetic stress, which means a good stress, um, but it still adds to the stress pile, if you like. Um, So one and three for women is the weeks that I would do it for menstruating women. But, um, but yeah, I think it's useful. It's beneficial. Um, I think, yeah, lots of people get lots of good things out of it. it. It sort of reminds your body what nature feels like because we used to wake up and shower and clean in cold water and it's only in the last hundred years that that's changed. Um, so I think it's got a lot of utility. But, again, if you've got a super stressful life, your hormones are all out of whack, um, definitely don't do them on those on, you know, when you need to be relaxing, which is, you know, pre-ovulation, ovulation week um, and pre-bleed week when you're getting your cravings and, you know, things are happening that week. So that's what I would say. Hmm. Good answer. I like it. Mm-hmm. What do you both find with cold showers or do you do them? N- no, I tried. <laughs> I tried to get into the Wim Hof stuff for a while, but 
Um, I'm a total wuss when it comes to cold water. So I didn't last very long. Mm-hmm. And, and then I did, mm-hmm. I did a little bit of research around it. And what I found was like, you just said that, that st- st- it could, it adds to the stress bucket. So if you've got the mm-hmm. bucket and your typical North American mm-hmm. Australian woman, and you're filling your stress bucket up every single day and you're fasting and yeah. maybe you're doing low carb and you're exercising like crazy and you're doing cold plunges that you're really filling up a stressor, a stress bucket. Yeah. And it's going to start to overflow yeah. and it's going to cause some damage. So you do have to use it wisely and make mm-hmm. sure that you're balancing that mm-hmm. out with stuff that's filling up the non-stress bucket. <laughs> well, on, on the note of that stress cortisol response to just a little tidbit for anyone listening, man or woman, but don't do cold therapy or cold showers within... 30, 40 minutes either side of food because uh, you put your, your body into a fight, flight or, and stress mm. response which, which uh, inhibits or you know, partially inhibits your digestive process and function. And, and I find with most of the women I work with, their gut health issues are a mixture of the nutrition but also stress response that's not regulated or just going on forever. So, um, yeah, if you're going to eat, Within the next, you know, straight after your shower, probably don't have a cold shower because you're, yeah, limiting your digestive ability. Hmm, good tip. I jump into the pool after a workout. What's that? I was just thinking I jump into the pool or, or go for a ride on a cold morning, but not in the dead of winter. I'm not, <laughs> like you said, there's enough stresses in life. I go lift heavy weights rather than, mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm not, not that hardcore. <laughs> Come on, you're hardcore, Marty. <laughs> I love when you guys, you Australians, say the dead of winter. Because I recently talked to Maddie about this. I'm like, oh, because he was like, oh, it's so cold outside right now. We're in the middle of winter. I'm like, wait a second. What do you think is cold? He's like, 10 degrees Celsius. I'm like, okay, try minus 35 this winter here in Canada where I am. So don't be a wuss, Marty, okay? It's not the dead of winter. But my stress bucket's full, Karen. <laughs> Marty needs a hug. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, okay. So I've got a question that I'm actually just going to send somebody elsewhere for this one because she asked about training around the cycle and eating around the cycle. And I've done a lot on this. So I'm just going to link to those shows in the mm-hmm. show notes. Um, so you can go and listen to that. Uh, and then we've got one about histamine intolerance. I think I may have histamine intolerance or mast cell activation issue due to some of my symptoms. Would love to understand better if you have any insights, assuming this could be worsening or triggered by hormonal changes. Is there some type of test to confirm adding histamine foods to my list? Or I would say removing, I think she meant to say to my list is daunting since I'm already struggling with gluten, dairy, and egg-free right now. Favorite supplements for histamine intolerance. Do you do you guys do much with histamine intolerance? I do a little bit. Um yeah. Yeah, I do a little bit, not too much. Um, I would probably need to answer this question by looking at some results, some blood results, and um, yeah, going. It would be need to be a much more personalized response, I think, with the mast cell act- activation and that type of thing. But I do a little bit, but not heaps. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm gonna just quickly add copper. Copper toxicity mm. is a big thing. 
Um, we, a lot of people have copper toxicity and it's due to the imbalance between zinc and copper. So to have your RBC zinc and copper and your seroplasmin, I think if that's how you say it correctly, tested to see what your ratios are. Um, is a good starting point because it can cause this mast cell activation, which can also trigger hormonal issues. Um, we tend to have an increase in copper when estrogen goes up, which then can cause um, the mast cell activation somehow. Like it increases the glutamate activity in the brain, if I remember this correctly. It's a very deep subject. I'm going to have somebody come on actually to talk about it on my podcast to jump into it farther. But bottom line is, is you've got, like, if you've got all these food sensitivities already, and you think you've got histamine intolerance, gut, 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 you've got a leaky gut. And so it's about getting to that, about still fixing and healing up the gut, continuing to remove foods and foods. Like you get to that place where then everything you become... Mm -hmm sensitive to. And I've seen this so many times where people are like, okay, I'm going to remove all of the the high histamine foods. And then I'm going to remove the autoimmune foods. And then I'm going to remove the oxalate. And it's like, okay, well, what are you left with? Because they just become sensitive to everything they eat because they're not getting to the, the root of the problem. So finding out if there's something in the, that's like an infection in the gut or anything like that, I find LDN low dose naltrexone to be one of the better things for almost all gut problems, it seems to really help because it increases your immune system and that helps with gut function in general. It got rid of my histamine intolerance um, by taking it. I used to have terrible histamine intolerance and taking LDN seemed to have fixed it. So um, check that out. And then one of the better supplements and people to check out is um, Ben, Dr. Ben Lynch, and he's got a product that helps uh, that you can take that will help you to break down the histamine in the gut. And that's in Diax. Di- oh, I forget the name of it, but you can check that out. And it's called like Histease, I think, and you can get it on Amazon. So I would, that would be my number one quercetin mm-hmm. and vitamin C um, on top of yeah, that. Yeah, I suppose you could go into a elimination diet, even a carnivore diet, but like you said, Karen, you can get to the yes. point where you've eliminated everything and you then become even more insensitive to anything, um, which can be problematic. So, yeah, and definitely when we look at low oxalate, low histamine, low FODMAP, you're just removing, you're, you're limiting your dietary choices to the the nutrients you can actually get into your diet. So all of those low-type diets tend to be lower in nutrient density. And like I said, there's a whole bunch of nutrients that will help you improve your, your tolerance to histamines and everything else and a better immune system overall. Um, so, yeah, don't limit your diet too much for too long, but maybe an elimination diet, bringing things back in slowly might be a good thing. Yeah, I agree. Yep. Cool. Um, where are we up to? Is that me? Who's next? Um, there's one from um, Robin. Um, oh, sorry, it was Kathy. Um, she said, I'm always able to control my eating for a few days. This is for Matty. And then once I give myself permission to eat something not on my protocol, I go off track and can't seem to get back on. Also, usually the reason I give myself permission to eat something I shouldn't is because I'm so bored with healthy food. I get tired of denying myself the foods I've been eating my whole life. How do I keep on keep from getting bored from the foods that are good for me? I give myself, I get myself immediately back on track when I waver. Yeah, 
Good question. What habits, Maddie? Yeah, totally. Um, the first thing would be to make healthy food not boring. Um, you want to when you eat, you want to you want to be satiated. You want to be like, oh, that was delicious. Um, and the best way to do that is making sure that you've got you know, like Marty's school of um, approach to this stuff, which is making sure you've got your micronutrients, your macronutrients. So that takes care of the biological satiation. Um, but for your sort of happy hormones and your psychological satiation, you want to make sure that it's flavorful, that it's delicious, that it's an enjoyable experience. And the way that you would do that is adding in herbs, spices, and there are so many herb and spice mixes, which are pre-made. You just chuck them on or you chuck them in. It's so easy to do. And a lot of people sort of feel that when we hit this herb and spice section, it's like, oh, I've got to be a chef to go this far. And you really don't. Like there's so much you can do. Even salt, even salting stuff just simply makes it more flavorful. So you want to make sure that it's, you know, it's really yummy. You want to eat healthy food and be like, oh, that was great. I could, I don't, because you're eating healthy food, it's unlikely you want to be driven to overeat, but you want to have that feeling of like, I could probably do that again. Because it tasted so good, right? So, and that, that also might be, um, might involve you learning to cook a bit better. Um, I think that's a skill that's been lost or is slowly being lost is the ability to cook food and understand how different foods work together. So, I think there's that. The other thing is with the permission. So, she mentioned permission there too is so real permission doesn't end up with the system falling apart. Um, the, what's happening there is actually so we're breaking the rules. We're, we're coming at it from the wrong psychological angle, which is when we give ourselves permission, we essentially open the door, we walk through and we close the door behind us and we're like, that was nice. Um, but when, when we um, don't technically give ourselves permission to enjoy a particular type of food or have a pizza or a wine or whatever it is, um, we're essentially like, oh, I'm bored with this crappy diet and so I'm going to rebel against the diet and I'm going to do what I want and take back control. And that's the big thing because before you started the diet, the personality and identity that you had eating the foods that you ate felt like you were in control. Even though you might know that it wasn't really good for your health and that you weren't making the best decisions, you felt like you were in control of your decisions and the way that you went about your life. And so we've introduced this new diet, which is maybe you feel is, and this is another way to reframe it, you might feel that this is being forced upon you or that you're forcing it on yourself. And so you've lost control in a way. You've pushed yourself into the passenger seat of your own health journey. So when you quote unquote give yourself permission, you're like, finally, I take back control. And your inner child literally rebels. It fights against that. And it says, now we've given ourselves permission. Let's go to town. Let's go crazy and enjoy ourselves because this is what being in control feels like. And when I'm in control, and all of us have this, I feel safe secure and certain and our reptilian brain loves that because it means we're not going to die which sounds like a, a huge stretch but that's that's the reason we default it, like the brain works on the devil i know is better than the devil i don't uh, and that, that's how it protects itself even if intellectually we can understand that the devil i don't know might be a, a much nicer friend to me that's our familiarity of our nervous system stays here so i would say two things make sure that um the food you're eating is actually delicious and satiating and makes you happy and you enjoy it and then the second thing is to work on reframing um giving yourself permission to make sure that it's real permission because I, I talk to a lot of people that say um, I give myself permission to have the wine or the chocolate or whatever and then at 11 p.m. at night they're lying in bed staring at the ceiling beating themselves up for the decision they made 
that's not permission. You didn't give yourself permission if you're punishing yourself for it. Um, so make sure that you're actually giving yourself real permission, which is creating a space uh, for you to do whatever you want to do, but also committing to a time, whether it be that evening, the next morning, where you just return to normal. Don't swing all the way to kale smoothies, you know, or for like a week to try and detox that one event that you went to. Just go back to what is normal. And when you get there, don't beat yourself up. Just be like, okay, we're back on the bandwagon. Here we go. It's Tuesday. Amazing. I love it all. Yeah. I know. I noticed in that question how many mm. negative words exactly. she had, like deny, the permission, bored. And I'm going to go off of this one here too, which was for Maddie, which was, um, she says, I'm fat. I know I'm fat. I'm beyond excuses. I've watched the hormone videos, the keto keto carnivore exercise vids. I'm beyond overwhelm. Um, So she says, but I haven't changed my diet. I'm still fat. I'm 195 pounds. Why am I not willing to give up the Japanese food, the rice, the barbecue sauce? Why can't I say goodbye to the fun and pleasure of normal food? Because it's fun and pleasure. I'll try keto for a few weeks, but I cave. I did carnivore. I caved. I get so bored. No excuses. I'm just not choosing wisely. And that damn donut (laughs) was so good. Maybe I'm just addicted to sugar and need a shrink. (laughs) Okay, so number one, ladies, I am going to say... You start putting that negative crap around your eating, you will never, ever be able to stick to it. Humans are creatures of pleasure, period, end of story. The minute you think you're suffering, you will do what you can to get back Mm -hmm. over to pleasure which is for you eating the donut, eating the the Japanese food, because you have it in your head that being healthy is torture, that eating well and exercising is so painful and boring and you got to stay and it's restrictive. Stop, stop, stop. You have to get excited about it. You have to be like, Yes, I can. I love eating so well. Even if you got to fake it till you make it, you do it. But every time you sit down to a super healthy meal, you have to get excited about it. Use some flavors, like Maddie said. Put like things like curry dishes where you've got the rich coconut milk and all those flavors. Cinnamon, cinnamon actually like triggers stuff in your brain to make you think you're eating sugar, so it can help boost dopamine, I think. I don't even know if it does that, but it can just make you feel good. Like you're eating something sweet, but have those flavors in there. Really enjoy your food and continue to tell yourself over and over again, how delicious it is and how excited you are to eat that food. And so you have to make it exciting. You can't just sit down and eat a breast breast of chicken and broccoli and think, Oh, this is so tasty. That's not going to happen. So make it good food, get some recipes. If you can't do that, then get those like, there's so many of these like box food box things that you can get now where it's like they deliver it to your door and you just put it all together. Do that if you have to get somebody to start cooking you some, some different dishes, you know, where you can pick up casserole dishes of certain foods, like healthy stuff, but do whatever you have to, but you have to get excited about it. If you think it's that painful and this boring and so hard. Yeah. That's always, that's never going to change as far as you wanting that food. We all want it. I want it. Maddie wants it. Marty wants it. Like 
I love a good donut. Like, do not get me wrong. Yeah, we had a we had a good conversation about donuts. But I don't restrict. (laughs) We did. (laughs) It was National Donut Day in Australia, so I am going there next year to be part of that. And I get excited. And whenever we have people over, my brother in law comes with this great big box of donuts and I just love it. And it only happens probably once every couple of months, but I'm like, yeah, bring on the donut and I'll eat one. And then like Maddie says, I just, I don't even think about it. I just get back on that health train and know that I love to eat that way because it makes me feel good and I enjoy it. And so I encourage you all to just find what's going to work for you as far as whether it's keto carnivore. And I had somebody else ask, like, I'm so confused. There's just so much information out there. Find what's going to work for you. Stop looking outside yourself and find what's going to work for you. I mean, I have entire programs around this about finding your perfect diet. And so there is a way to do that. And so you don't have to go, what's the best diet diet to lose weight? It's going to be different for each and every one. The other one thing I'd so mentioned based out. on both of the language that was used in those questions, and this is like, uh, this is a bit deeper, is that like, uh, do you feel worthy of being a healthy person? A lot of a lot of the women that I work with follow Instagrammers that they want to be like, like, but then you dig into it and be like, I could never be like that. Or, you know, and you start using this language of like, I could never be a healthy person. Healthy people behave like X, Y, Z, and I couldn't possibly do that. So if you perceive yourself as somebody that doesn't deserve good outcomes or isn't worthy of nourishing yourself and keeping in mind the the, the media, social media, everything is designed to make you think the world's falling apart. Everything's shit. You, you suck. You're a small pleb in the system. And it's designed to keep you thinking that way. And so if you currently think that way, you might need to change your friend circle. You might need to stop watching the news. You might need to start practicing some self-love, self-respect uh, strategies to start building your self-esteem and self-confidence to be like, it is worth looking after myself. And, you know, I am an important part of my family or society or my own life and I have value. And and a lot of people are really, really down, especially after the last two years here in Australia, particularly in Mm. Melbourne, uh, but even just generally in life, like, you know, it's society is designed to keep you small, um, unfortunately. And so I think we've got to start working on that inner dialogue, that inner belief about I am worthy and being healthy is how I want to step into that worth. Yeah, and I suppose you can reframe it as well to say I want to nourish my body. I'm not depriving my body of all the yummy stuff. I'm actually nourishing my body with the things it needs. And if you buy good quality ingredients, they'll taste better, they'll be satisfying, Mm -hmm. you'll enjoy it, and you'll be less likely to to crave that other stuff. But don't rip off the Band-Aid and do it all at once because you won't stick with it. Just, you know, incorporate some more healthy, nutrient-dense foods, whatever, belief system or paradigm or dietary preference you have and the you get the dopamine from nourishing your body from satisfying your body with the things that meet your cravings and you get off the dopamine roller coaster that that the donut gives you and it's the dopamine deficit state that you get after that big dopamine high and the crash that drives you to want to eat another donut but if you moderate the the dopamine roller coaster, similar to the blood sugar roller coaster, they sort of go together by prioritizing the food that's good for you and your body wants and needs mm-hmm. deep down. 
um, you'll get off the roller coaster and it'll be less of a, a dopamine roller coaster that Maddie always talks so eloquently about. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> I love listening to you, Maddie. Uh, and and just, just quickly, I know that we've probably got to wrap up soon, but like it's just as Marty said there, like if you focus on what you don't get, that just makes you miserable. Like, of course, you're going to be resentful and angry and want to break the rules of the system because you're like, I don't get this. And we've effectively become a child that's had its rattle taken off it. And it's like, you know what? That's it. I'm going to get pizza. I'm getting wine. I'm going to chocolate. I'm going to overeat the shit out of this food. It's going to be amazing. Um, I'm going to throw a tantrum in the corner. Yeah, totally. So, yeah, I, I really like that, Marty, of like, yeah, nourishing and I get to eat all of this amazing food and like, feel, you know, experiment with flavors and explore what's possible. It's, yeah, you get more of what you focus on. Yeah, I think that is that it, everyone. Is that all the questions? Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Pretty much. All right. This was good. That was good. It's good timing. Hour and a half. Yeah, I mean, we we each one of those questions could have been an episode all on their own. So pretty good. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, and the three of us could just talk Lots forever. Of good stuff in there. <laughs> Yeah, we really could. <laughs> well, we're going to have to have you guys back on again and I'll 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 pick one of these topics that, you know, we can we can go off on for another hour and a half and do another Q&A down the road cuz people are going to be like, "Oh, I wish I would have sent my question in to them." <laughs> but you guys can all check us all out at our different locations. I'm going to link to all of our websites below. Yeah, Maddie and Marty both have excellent podcasts, some of the top podcasts in Australia on health and nutrition and so you can find a ton more information on all these topics on their podcast as well as mine. So thanks everybody for showing up today and listening to the podcast. And don't forget to rate us all, all three of us <laughs> on iTunes, <laughs> five stars, <laughs> written reviews about how fantastic yes, yes, please. we are. I want one of those. All right, everyone. <laughs> thanks, <Karen. laughs> <Yeah>. thanks guys. Thanks guys. Thanks for listening to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. If you love this episode and health information is your thing, then please consider subscribing to the show. And when you're done, head over to iTunes, Google Podcast, or whichever app you use, and we'd be grateful if you could leave us a five-star rating and write a review sharing your opinion on the show as it really helps the podcast grow. Thanks so much, and I'll see you on the next episode. Whilst the presenter that feature on this podcast endeavour to provide accurate information, it cannot possibly take into account your individual circumstances, and therefore the content on this podcast provided by any of the speakers is not intended as advice in any way for any individual, and should not be a replacement for professional medical or health advice of any nature. Always seek advice regarding your personal situation from a qualified medical professional.